And now, it's time for the Dad Bod Rap Pod with your hosts, Damone Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Dad Bod Rap Pod, episode 146. My name is Damone Carter, aka Dimp One. I am joined in Zoom by Mr. David Ma. How's it going, Dave? Yo, what's up, guys? It's good to see you. Um, going well. Just, uh, you know, about 10 pounds heavier this week. That's right. We're on the post Thanksgiving uh, episode. Dave, did you uh, do anything special and or not socially acceptable for this uh, Thanksgiving? <laughs> I um I went to Coachella. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> nothing, man. It's the first year that we we kind of separated and isolated, so it was definitely weird. We did a little family Zoom thing, which is very um, uninteresting, but um, yeah. and it was it was fun for about five minutes. So other than that, I just fucking ate and smoked weed and slept and still have heartburn from last Thursday. Dope, dope. Glad to hear it, man. Glad you glad you're you're back eating the meats and uh, doing your thing, man. It's, it's Thank good. you, sir. Good to see, good sloth. Uh, and also, not speaking of good sloth, I don't have a transition there. Uh, I would also like to say hello, hi, to Mr. Nate LeBlanc. How's hello, it going, guys. bro? It's going good. Um, as I was, uh, my little retort I've been using when people ask me about Thanksgiving is like, it's probably going to be the only year of my life I get to do it the way I want. Ooh. You know what okay. I mean? Usually you have okay. to compromise in some way or you, you, they let you bring one dish or like a pie or a bottle of wine or something. This year I got to just make and have things exactly how I wanted. And while I nice. miss my family, that was kind of tight. Nice. Yeah. Autonomy. I love yeah. it. I love it. Uh, um, a little Nate? thing I've been wondering about that I would like to ask you guys, and that is what is a non-hip-hop music thing you've been into lately hmm a non-hip-hop music thing dave which reggae record should we start <laughs> i'm just i'm just kidding just kidding oh, what what, what, what non-hip-hop thing uh are you are you bumming this is a great question nate dave what do you where, where do you stand? you know what i mean um we're right now i'm in the midst of compiling the year end um best of mm -hmm. records so a lot of mm -hmm. a, a lot of non-hip-hop stuff's on my mind but I gotta say the Karangbin album is like fucking tops, dude. I literally like every song. And it's like, uh, what? it's so great to have a warm album for these cold times. Mm. Um, super into that record. I know it's like, you know, it's topping most people's lists, but it's deservedly so. Um, what about you, Damon? I am on the uh, crew banging. What, how, do we, how do you say it? Karangbin. Karangbin. I've been just calling it crew banging this whole time. <laughs> uh, you should switch to that. It's better. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, she is banging. Oh, oh, the whole crew, really, if you think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, butchering, butchering words. I'm sorry. Uh, I, lo I love that record. Um, I also am just really, when I'm not doing my deep dive on album of the year, song of the year stuff, I'm with you, Dave. Um, I'm in that space because I take this way too seriously, even though kind of like nobody really cares. You guys submit for POW. I do this. I'm not sure why I do it for my oh, own heart. Oh, for DPRP. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for DPRP, yep. That's right. As we if anybody remembers. It's nice to what? use the POW list to organize my thoughts, but my actual 
expression of what I think will more occur in our end of the year spectacular. It better, or I'll tell the producer. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I've been in that space because I, I do, I take that, that piece really seriously. And then, uh, so I haven't had a, a, a ton of time, very much like Dave, haven't had a ton of time to, to get in my non-hip-hop um, bag, which is abnormal for me, but uh, I'm digesting the salt. Yes, yes. You know, the salt's run this yes, year. I kind of put all four, four, three records um, into a one thing, and I've kind of been just kind of going through that and being like, if this came out as one thing, this would be one of the greatest triple album things that ever that ever happened uh so i'm still kind of baffled there's still a mystery around salt that i think is great like we don't right. quite understand everything that's going on there and i think that somehow adds um to the mystique the listening uh, experience because every time we talk about this on the show and how great it is we get a bunch of texts asking right, right. Salt, S-A-L-T, I'm Googling it. I can't find anything. Totally, totally. It's S-A-U, right? S-A-U-L-T? S-A-U-L-T, S-A-U-L-T. Yeah. And, and they're out of uh, the UK. They're, yeah, out of, the, out of the UK, definitely, you know, I hear echoes of everything from like soul to soul to Nate brought up totally. ESG. Totally. Is a great kind of corollary. Yeah, yeah, little Samande in there. It's, it's mm -hmm. everything black and British and cool um that ever happened and also it kind of sounds american too so totally. i'm baffled uh enthralled and i don't think it was nominated for any grammys which is still definitive proof the grammys are not shit uh <laughs> nate you've been listening to a lot of fish i hear you tell <laughs> I haven't quite, over here quite gone down that rabbit hole yet but i am in this phase where i'm like kind of obsessed with the grateful dead for the first time in my life Wow. And it's just, I've always listened to the album American Beauty. I grew up with that record. It's like one of the great Americana records um, where they, I saw, I've been watching this Amazon documentary, Long Strange Trip, and it's really well done. And in the second episode, they really hone in on how they switched up their style to like accomplish that. But it's also like they recorded that album and Working Man's Dead in the same session. So now I'm obsessed with Working Man's Dead. And I have been dipping a toe in the live concert waters. Wow. Which is Jesus. Like pretty crazy for me. I like never thought that I would be into that. And I'm still not really. Like I have, it hasn't clicked in for me with the live stuff yet. The only thing yeah. that I've found is this one song on their Europe 72 live album because they do this great piece in the docu-series about how it was recorded and what drugs they were on and the, the meaning of the moment. And I think I need that kind of context to get into it. Cause if you think about it, they're, they basically exist now as like a template for streetwear and as like this kind of like <laughs> utopian community from the past. But I don't think that many people actually delve into the music that much who are not mm -hmm. like deadheads. And mm -hmm. I've never wanted that stigma on me. Like that's just not the kind of person that I, <laughs> but I will say they're, is some really, really good playing on the records and that when they focused on what they did well, they're a really good band. And I think I've just wanted to like expand mm. like the kind of cottage core, like rural vibe of my week away in the beginning of November into my real life. And that they've given me this kind of way to do that. But mm. I, I'm still not totally on board, but I'm like learning as much as I can. And it's a band with like, 
mythology dude like there is so if you if you want to go deep with a band there's just like hundreds and hundreds of hours of interpretation and it's just Mm -hmm. i don't know it's just fascinating to me right now so interesting so nate is one tab away from us doing an intervention that's that's basically (laughs) we're getting um we're getting you tie-dye t-shirts for uh christmas Well, but that's the thing about the Grateful Dead. I'm glad you brought this up, Nate, because that is one of the, I would say, greatest bands that just never, like, I sat down and forced myself to understand why Bob Dylan is fucking amazing. Like, I had, but I had to do it. You know what I mean? I tried to do that with um, with uh, the Dead, and it just, I, I'm, I'm obviously missing um, I'll say something this. or a lot of if things. If you stick to this very fertile period of their studio albums on Warner Brothers when they were they hadn't fully committed to the road yet there are some really beautiful songs I don't know how much like Americana you listen to but like they're like they're kind of a shitty white blues band they're like a really weirdly exploratory psych band live but for a couple years in this like late 60s early 70s they were this really good like proto Uncle Tupelo Jayhawks like kind of Mm. like wow tinging on country a lot of slide guitar little mandolin yeah. like you have to See, be able to, to go that's there. tough i don't know so, if you as someone who goes there <laughs> well it's yeah, tough that's... man it's it's definitely tough i think anything um and this is just a comment on my personal taste and not any kind of musical you know doctrine but yeah anything that has like seems a little bit like a uh, uh, white guy bluesy or um a little bit country i struggle with which was has been my my barrier to some of the folkier things but um you know i'm down in johnny cash phase around like walk the line when everyone was like listening to johnny cash that's as johnny cash yeah i'll 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 mess with some johnny cash yeah Yeah, but but it took it took that cultural moment and the like first two three rick rubin albums you could you could put yourself together a nice little thing throw in some hits throw in some ring of fire or whatever for the kids like you could do life at live at Folsom. And that ignores yeah. like 50 years of his output, literally. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Dave, you are you a deadhead at all, Dave? I am not. I, uh, I tried like post high school and could, just could not get into it. So my no? next question was, Nate, like what, what is the album to uh, check out? American Beauty. I, American it, Beauty. Like, for me, it's like a, this is like a, like a staggering achievement. It's just, it's just beautiful. Okay. What okay. they did is stop focusing so much on technical proficiency in their instrumental playing, which leads them to these like long guitar solo, like far out explorations of instrumentation and focus on their vocal production. Mm. And so they just have these really beautiful harmonies and these relatively simple songs. Though if you look at like guitar tabs or whatever, there's still a ton going on. They're intricate records, okay. but um, Truckin' is on there. That's like one of their biggest right. songs. and you know, talks about drugs and like, <laughs> you all know, right, stuff all like right. that. But if you give American Beauty a listen, Dave, as someone who likes Neil, who likes Bob, like, I think you'd find a lot of kinship there. Okay. Okay. Sounds yeah. good. So yeah. Jerry Garcia. Worth a listen while you're, while you're doing some dishes or something to just see if you could stomach it. And then, then we yeah. could talk about, uh, you know, concerts in Oregon in 1972, the three hour <laughs> version. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll stomach some shrooms first, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I, I've got a shroom plug now, so uh, maybe, maybe I have a better entry point than just Cherry Garcia ice cream. Yeah. And just because um, you made the fish joke, I did go to a fish concert once in my life. It was mm-hmm. uh, the day before 
I think that it was the day before the se my senior year of high school started. It was like okay. the last day of summer and I went wow. with my cousin Michelle and we had a very good time and I'll tell you yeah. guys stories from that sometime when we're not recording. Um, that was okay. a really fun night and uh, yeah, but I, I don't like fish. I never have gotten into fish. So if this mm, continues no. and in like a year from now, I'm, you know, manufacturing questions so we can talk about fish you'll know something drastic has happened okay okay we'll contact lucia we'll get you the help that you need yes, I, exactly. I understand um is there is there a rap equivalent to the grateful dead if we had to make a rap corollary hmm. the roots if they never got fallon mm. if the roots had just continued touring for the rest of their life yeah. just circling the yeah. country and bringing people joy and throwing things like the picnic and just like if they, the roots without day jobs would be the closest thing we could ever get, I think. Okay, okay, mm. that's that's fair. And and I would say it's kind of like the roots in the sense that they've got this huge body of work, they've toured so extensively, and you just don't land on like too many individual songs from that run, right? You you have to take in the roots as a as a thing. It's the like totality. Like, mm -hmm. Very like in many ways, especially for the later stuff, like they're they're legend as a live band outstrips the legend of their studio recordings right mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. and th th that's how a lot of people feel about the grateful dead i'm not one of them I like like with the roots i i, I like plenty of the studio recordings as a live right. band they're great but it's a, it's so interesting because um i've only seen the roots twice i think like how can you really know a band they were amazing but like totally totally you have to see someone like 10 times 50 times to like get their essence as a band right right like right. The, the way that mm -hmm. concerts happen now it doesn't it doesn't really like lend yourself to that i'm not going to follow anyone on tour i'm like 40 years old you know totally I mean? well i don't i don't know if the grateful dead had like the same touring unit but i know the roots like kept switching their shit up like every few years so right like, that it, might be a, dif a difference yeah they, they did they like would have people filter in and out and frankly as i'm learning from this docu-series like important members would die all the time just like based mm. on what drugs were around and stuff. Mm. Pretty crazy. Jesus. Crazy, Anyways. crazy times. And you came to the dad bod rap pod and you got the dead bod rap pod. So <laughs> nice. we got everything that y'all's needs. Um, speaking of weirdos, I want to touch a little bit uh, before we get to our interview on um, some comments that came out this, uh, I guess, over the weekend, over Thanksgiving weekend. Um, a young thug talked to the Barbara Walters of the South, T.I., uh, <laughs> for a podcast. And, and, and can we just, like, people, like, you know, A, B list rappers, can you not have podcasts? Like, the fuck? <laughs> like, leave something for the rest of us. Right. But apparently T.I. has a podcast. Young Thug came on and made some disparaging remarks about uh, Andre 3000 um, and when T.I. suggested that they should work together. And um, it was interesting. I'm proud of who we are as a people, as rap Twitter. I thought I saw a minimum of these young rappers have no respect takes. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think we may be in a new place. It was almost like the take of the day was uh, this is where you would put a these young rappers uh, have no respect kind of take. Did Dave, you're you're a big three thousand fan. What what did you think when when you heard about these comments? You also like Young Thug, as I do. Um, uh, well, um, firstly, I I kind of hate Ti as well for like those comments he made about his daughter. So fuck him. Yeah. And, and his podcast, but um, 
Yeah, re regarding Young Thug, it's like, how can you say that when you also wear dresses, dude? You're yeah. a, a direct yeah. lineage. You know, it's, it's like it's like Ice Cube hating on Ice-T or something. You know, right. it's, <laughs> it's like so blatant. It's like, who the fuck are you? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have like a, a crazy nuanced take besides like, what the fuck is up with them? And, and you know, to your point with um, people actually standing up for um, 3000. I'm glad to see that, but it was just like so blatantly ridiculous. I mean, how can you just, how can you not acknowledge that? You know what I mean? Even someone who's not, an, not into Young Thug or not into Andre 3000 can see the connections between the two. So it's kind of absurd. What about you, Damon? Um, yeah, it was, it was almost kind of like funny because just because it's so obvious in the way that you say, I, I do look at Young Thug as being of a of a group of rappers who are who are of that lineage, right? Like totally, totally. Andre opened a door that um, a lot of folks walked through. Future being among them, um, but I would think that Young Thug, you could argue, might track the closest. I'm trying in in kind of the totality mm -hmm. of of who Andre presented himself to the world to be. And so um, when I actually like read about it, because it was the weekend and I had time, um, it it kind of stems from this. I think some uh, hurt feelings over Young Thug maybe reached out and Andre was mm -hmm. like, hit my mm -hmm. personal assistant. Yeah. Um, and Young Thug's like, Elton John didn't do that to me. Like, and I'm like, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah Fine. Yeah. You're, you're a little, you got high-sided by the goat. You're a little, yeah, he's you're just, a little. He's in, butthurt, dude. He's yeah, butthurt. A little in your feels. Uh, Nate, what, what? You of, of the three of us probably care the least about these type of things, but um, I'm gonna put you on the spot anyway. Sure. Uh, what what were your your kind of thoughts on this this brouhaha? I, I skipped it. Like I I wasn't on Twitter that much this weekend. I kind of didn't know it happened. I haven't listened to what Young Thug said. I wish, in general, that we acknowledged the past better in hip hop culture. That like you know we we've done this riff before, but it's like you know like. Uh, whip or whip should live in a mansion and run dmc right. should be right you know doing stadium tours like the rolling right. stones do and blah blah blah, right. blah blah but um i i think i lean a little bit more towards what you said Damon. this sounds a little personal and it sounds a little um like this is his momentary reaction based on things that had recently happened i think i think mm -hmm. i would like to think that he he does know how important outcast and andre and andre's whole deal was to him being allowed to operate the way he is but to be honest like i don't know anything about young thugs internal motivations i like a little bit of his music mostly based around like the 2015 ish time period mm -hmm. 2016 2017 mm -hmm. like haven't haven't really checked for much new um i was just um you know it's it's okay if he feels that way i guess i don't know i don't care <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for trying, though. I, I, saw you, yeah. I saw you trying to, to gin up some interest, and it yeah. just it just faded there. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the thing I, I'll, I guess I'll close by saying this: I would imagine, given what we know about three stacks, that he doesn't care. Oh no, no, he seems like he's living his best life. I, I doubt. And also, it's um, he is an interesting case among the goats in that uh, he is the least attention seeking. Right, right. I think right. I think of all the people who are alive that we think of as being the greatest kind of rappers on on that level, like on that, like I sold mm -hmm. a billion copies and all that kind of stuff. 
he seems to be the least uh, attention-seeking. Still does stuff, just to kind of let you know. He's still got the fastball. Like, his verse on um, on Anderson Pox album, right? oh. uh, thing was amazing. And I think he won a Grammy for it. Did you guys um, hear the new Goody Mob album? I did. I, I did. It. Yeah, like, it, it's good. I, I like a, a good five songs. I have really strong production. Um, Andre goes off. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. As expected. I kind of missed on, that one. I need to throw that in. As on every guest verse. I mean, it's like, here's the Andre verse, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's, still, he's still got it, but he's not like lording it over you. You know what I mean? Like totally, he sprinkles, totally. He sprinkles it in tastefully, mm-hmm. which I, which I uh, definitely appreciate. I don't know. I think, I think uh, hip-hop is that weird genre where, I, yeah, I wish we did revere things a little bit better, but at the same time, the want to completely destroy the past and start and seemingly start over without giving any credit, kind of was where hip hop gets its juice from a little bit. It, it really is this idea that um, no matter what came before me, I am the best thing that ever happened. Um, it's weird, it's egomaniacal, but I, the summer rap's energy comes from that. Where I, I agree where, with that and actually do think it's led to a lot of like leaps forward. Like that's how, that's how you leap forward, right? Is not by revering the past but the, but at the same time as all, as all of that is what you're saying is like it, it's also made out of samples so it's literally made out of the past you know <laughs> right, what i mean yes, right, like, yeah, totally totally it's, it's it's a it's a weird dichotomy but um i think like in the bay area at least it would be like extremely uncool for someone to say that about like e40 so like you know no, it's totally. just it's like i'm wondering mm-hmm. like if, if in atlanta this is like causing a generational rift or if this is like interesting out of bounds you know what i mean i feel like we have pretty stiff rules around here sorry dave go ahead oh no i'm sorry i was gonna say i mean if these young cats like don't have reference a reverence for the past it's more like who cares you know fuck them fuck young thug but also like have some acknowledgement you know what i mean if i mean it's like prince not acknowledging david bowie or static selector not acknowledging primo or something that's right. so obvious you know what i mean right it doesn't mean that they gotta like pray at their altar but come on dude andre someone asks you about it in an interview be like yeah he's he's the goat next question totally totally well, he, wore, but, he wore a purple dress right before you did like right, what the fuck? right. How, can you, how can you not acknowledge his ex- existence i think i think that there's a long history of this especially in like media if you want to have a spicy interview kind of pick pick a, a hip-hop legend to trash. I remember very, not very famously, but this is how my mind works. I remember an article where uh, one of Nate's favorite groups, the St. Lunatics, um, disparaged KRS-One, and this was like maybe, or you know, to whenever, whenever Nelly was a thing, uh, and they, dis- they disparaged KRS-One in an interview as a way of saying, we are a new thing. And I remember reading that and going, this is so calculated. Like, they don't give a shit about KRS-One, obviously. Totally, um, totally. But it was, it's very calculated about, like, we don't give a shit about that. We're, we're new. We're a new generation. So I always think right. there'll be this kind of, like, um, uh, everybody kind of pretending like they're a motherless child, right? Like, they, yeah, yeah. they kind of just emerged uh, fully formed. And um, it's, it's cute. I hope that Elton, Young Thug, and Andre all get on a song all sequins all the time um <laughs> i think it would be amazing has any have you guys heard the elton john young thug joint no that doesn't sound fun that i have yeah that doesn't sound fun to me i'm gonna check it out just to not be that guy but 
Totally. Just on paper, I was like, what? Where? Yeah, yeah. Mm. On paper, it sounds terrible, actually. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so, yeah. So, you got, what did you get? You got the Grateful Dead. You got a little Young Thug. You got a little Three Stacks. Uh, we are the Dead by Rap Pod. This is what you come to expect. We, <laughs> we're expansive. And we also have uh, interviews lined up. Not one, but two. So for our first interview of this episode, we are going to, and by we, I mean uh, Nate and Dave, talk to DJ Day. Um, so let's just get into it. Dad bod, rap pod. Never, never die. Dad bod rap pod another week um, where you bring you the dopest interviews with the most important guests and this week is no different we got dj producer record head musician from palm springs dj day how you doing man i'm cool man what's good fellas how's doing everybody right? feeling out there are you guys live <laughs> still <laughs> i know right just, just scrubbing off the G the germs dude this has become just like a never-ending day. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like a year in a day. It's insane, man. It's totally. Groundhog like City. Well, yeah, what's good, fellas? Let's, let's do this. Yeah, well, you know, I, I want to start a little bit at the beginning um, and kind of tie it into some recent stuff. But, you know, I, I read some of your interviews, and you mentioned um, DJ Jazzy Jeff being like a big inspiration and how that was sort of a turning point for you. Um, can you talk a little bit about when that happened, when the realization happened, when you saw Jeff and sort of your relationship with him now, because I know that you do those playlist retreats as well. And that's gotta be, you know, that's, yeah. it's gotta be a good feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the most surreal feeling to be honest with you, to come from that time period of, of, of starting out. By the way, I'm just gonna, I might close this like light so I can just talk without having to know I'm on camera. <laughs> Cause right now how we're doing this is, is via, via the camera and the audio, but, uh, but word, um, yeah, man, back when I was like, shit, whenever uh, He's a DJ, I'm the Rapper came out. And even prior to that, when Rock the House came out, I was really starting to get into like, you know, scratching in general and hearing like Herbie Hancock Rocket, which I'm sure I've mentioned numerous times, as well as a lot of, mm. a lot of DJs. But, uh, but yeah, man, that, that particular record was a, a pivotal moment because it was split pretty much in half. Like one, one side of the cassette was like, Will rapping over Jeff's beats and the other side was basically just Jeff going off on a lot of tracks. And, um, and I, it was, it was mind boggling to me cause I could not figure out, I, I had no access to like DMC videos. The only thing I had, I mean, I, I'm in Palm Springs. The only thing I had was like Yom TV raps and maybe catch a glimpse of like somebody DJing in, in between. But, um, but yeah, man, I mean that, that basically just shifted my whole thing and, and, and made me want to become, a DJ and more specifically that type of DJ. So which encompasses like production and, and 
skill and technique and style and all those things, you know, so <clears throat> um, technicality and all that shit. So, so basically that was the genesis for me was that particular record sidebar. <laughs> I, I remember I cut out the back of the rock, the house record. Cause there's a picture of Jeff <laughs> with some turntables. I literally cut like the, my, my album sleeve and gave it to my mom. I'm like, mom, this is what I want for Christmas. <laughs> and I just lived with my mom in a little apartment and I woke up and she had gotten me like this, like Kmart, jump off which was like an all-in-one <laughs> like Sick. turn one turntable two tape decks radio thing and i basically taught myself off of that and then fucking i end up at his house so i have no idea <laughs> it's a lot of time in between but yeah <laughs> all right for sure that's dope man that's gotta be a huge honor oh absolutely so Nate? day you are a very skilled dj uh, a party rocker um someone who kind of holds down your scene in palm springs often plays in la i guess i'll use the past tense played we'll get back right. to it at some point um but you also are a producer of some really beautiful instrumental hip-hop music um, and that's how i became a fan of yours um in particular there was a time um where you and some of the other cats from Soul Strut were doing stuff with Melting Pot, and that's kind of where I first caught um, your. <laughs> I was telling Dave there was there was drama back then, and we don't have to totally get into it, but I'm just like setting the stage for the right. the uh, you know um, basically if you would kind of describe to the people what's your approach. Um, you you've made some music in collaboration with other artists, but I think. A lot of people have probably heard your music in places they may, might not have even known it was yours. And if you could just talk about how you approach making instrumental hip hop and kind of your, your history with that. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> man, that's like a, I'm trying to parse the, the parts of the question, but, um, and also delete melting pot music from my mind, which actually <laughs> came up last night, ironically, but I won't, I won't divert the question. So, um, yeah, man. Uh, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of like, like cassette singles had instrumentals on them and stuff. And I guess I would just, I, I don't know, man. I honestly, I really can't tell you what the core inspiration is for the instrumental hip hop part is. But as I kept listening to hip hop and people like Pete Rock would get more, more melodic and layered with the samples and having things in key. And, and I mean, back then when the equipment was so, for lack of a better word, like, like rudimentary in terms of what you could achieve, you know, for someone like Pete to make a Mecca and the Soul Brother or All Sold Out or whatever record, um, that shit was a, like a feat, man. You know what I mean? To try to find records that fit in the same tempo and the same key and, and the same vibe. I mean, that shit's an art unto itself. So I think I looked to a lot of people like him, like Primo, like Shadow, like a lot of, there's been a lot of like different angles and areas that probably shaped my perspective on on instrumental hip-hop but really at the end of the day i would just make shit and be like like i remember when i made four hills it was like in a little bedroom with like a 16 track digital recorder mpc um i think i used this pioneer effect box back in the day to like stretch the eddie kendrick sample at this one part but it was like all just done mpc turntables and roads and i think maybe another instrument somewhere in there and um, I remember listening, listening back to it and being like, yo, oh, I'm, shit, I'm mixing up what planet was stationed in Four Hills. <laughs> but yo, anyways, when I made Four Hills, I remember being like, yo, I, I rock with this. I like this. I feel this. And that's always been the litmus for me to put something out. It's like, yo, do I dig this? Do I want to listen to this? So 
you know, and, and I guess as I've gotten older, not being afraid to be more, I guess, emotionally fucking candid with my shit. I mean, I don't know how you want to, how you want to articulate that, but, and just really kind of step into making music instead of just saying I'm making instrumental hip hop or this and that, you know? Sure. Yeah, I get that. Um, I, I love that song Four Hills and um, it's kind of a go-to for me. And I think um, the instrumental hip hop thing in general, we, we joked about this when we had Blockhead on a couple of years ago. I was like, I'm going to try to get through this interview without describing your music as cinematic. And I failed with it like the first like 20 seconds or whatever. But I think um, it, the, the lack of vocals allows people to apply a wide range of intra- emotional interpretation to it. Right. So I think that they, that, that leaves, gives the listener a role in how it's perceived. And I think uh, your music in general is always like really, um, well-produced, the drum slap and like that everything fits together nicely. But I think even in your early work, there was always kind of like chords and things that brought um, a little bit more to it than things that were happening back then, in my opinion. No, Thurl, thank you. I appreciate that sincerely. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned that. I hadn't even thought about that angle because I, I listen to a lot of instrumental music in general. I mean, um, and I always like the space it gives you to kind of create your own narrative. Or, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like reading a book versus watching a movie, kind of. You know what I mean? You read a book and you can, you can form your own uh, imagery to it, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. But, um, but yeah, man, I mean, it's, and it's also something for me that was like, I don't know. I started implementing more instruments because I, I felt it was limiting for me to expression, expression-wise for me to just use samples even if i'm like layering them or doing whatever um you know i i used to joke like man i should have fucking learned the piano versus djing because <laughs> i could really like express myself like at least emotionally musically but you know you find ways around it and i just i just bought a Rhodes way back when like 99 for like 120 bucks out here 125 dollars, <laughs> and i just was fucking poke around on that shit until i figured out what fit and what and then eventually you figure out, oh, this is a core, this is the key, this is the scale in the song and yada, yada. So, I mean, just follow what the fuck you feel inside and try to let that out. That's always been my guiding, like, MO, you know what I mean? So hopefully that answered somewhat of your, <laughs> your question. <laughs> Absolutely. Dope, dope. You know, Day, I want to um, sort of get, like, uh, some behind-the-scenes sort of nuts and bolts type question. I, uh, I came across... Um, an interview of yours and you mentioned Exile and he's a big favorite around here and um, in particular finger drumming. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Exile and how he turned you on to that method and just you know how you incorporate that into your music? Yeah man my relationship with X goes back to like like when they had the Imaginary Friends mixtape. I don't know if anybody remembers way back when in like the 90s him and Aloe Black had a had a record Mm -hmm. and um or a mixtape basically and um and yes, well, yeah, exactly. As yep. and um, I had actually met Aloe first through a friend of mine who was working at LRG at the time, mm. and um, and then I ended up meeting Exxon going to his house. I moved to Orange County to work at uh, Subculture Magazine. This is really taking shit back. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like basically interning there and staying out there in that in that area, and ended up linking up with X. Almost same exact living situation, same exact everything, man. So we mm. had a lot of things to relate to, but um. But back to your question, um, he, he came out with that album called Radio, which is a whole thing was sampled off of LA Radio. Like the whole entire record was made off the radio. Um, he wanted to tour it. 
but didn't have the means to to be able to like have eight arms and shit. So <laughs> he came down and I was in the process of building this studio that I'm in right now with that's that's one from people under the stairs. And um, it was like literally like a shell of a room and we had a speaker set up up in our NPCs and like there's a video somewhere of him in the garage with a boombox like we he just came with some ideas and I came with some ideas and I had never really done that type of shit before mm -hmm. um and we man we rehearsed like a lot man it would be like 12 hour days of rehearsing and fleshing things out and then wow we ended up touring here in the states and then doing a, a European tour and um there's a bunch of stories and all too <laughs> 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 but uh but yeah man X is my man incredible Incredibly talented dude, and uh, yeah, he basically kind of was like, "Yo, can you can you come in and assist?" So I would try to play the role of like, "All right, I'm gonna be the bass player on this song, or I'm gonna be the key keyboardist on this song, or I'll have a mm -hmm. drum solo on this shit." And we would just try to flip things people knew, you know. At the time, it was still a relatively new concept, and we were lugging around fucking MPC 2000 XLs like across countries and shit. I remember <laughs> we did one show in um in Madrid. And then we had to go to Paris, and I, man, yo, I'm saying all this shit not to be like, yo, I was in Madrid, I was in Paris. Oh, no, 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 no. I think it's dope <laughs> as fuck. Yo, we, we, we get to the airport, probably like no sleep or whatever, and then we go to check our shit, and they're like, yeah, it's going to be $300 for, uh, for weight. And we were like, what in the fuck? Whoa. Like, so basically, I don't even remember how we, we finagled that shit or got out of it, but after that, it was like, man... I, I appreciate people who can now tour without having to bring literal full NPCs with discs and all that shit to go perform <laughs> around the globe for then lose money in the process. What the fuck? <laughs> but yeah, man. Dope, man. Dope. Yeah, man. So I don't know really how to ask this, but I'm just going to ask it. You can make of it what you will. Yes, it's... you're adorable, man. All right. <laughs> 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 we, did, we, did, we did begin the last show uh, talking about whether or not I should keep growing out my beard. So thank um, I, I just want to, it seems like you're the only DJ from Palm Springs and I'm sure that's not the case. I'm sure you have peers, but I just wanted to ask like, what has that been like? And like, do you, do you consider that to be true? And can you just g give us the, the setup? Palm Springs is an interesting town. It's, there's a lot of residents, there's a lot of tourism. It's really hot. It's just, a, it's an interesting place and it's an interesting yeah. part of the earth. So can you give people kind of like the lay of the land in particular from like a DJing and hip hop perspective, such as it yeah, is? Yeah, I mean, yeah, <clears throat> shit, cutting, cutting your teeth out here initially. I mean, there was a, there was a, a, an era before me of people, people who did hip hop and, and DJs before me that I looked up to. Um, in fact, I'll send one of you guys a video link of like some like late 80s Pump Springs rap. There's a fucking full on video and all this shit. Oh, but, wow. um, but you know, um, that was kind of the goal for me and not to, not to get too far off the subject, but I wanted to be a DJ for an MC. You know what I mean? I want to be in the background. Like that was the whole thing back then. It was like Guru and Premier, Pete and CL to go back to that. Or like this, this local group was a duo, DJ, MC shit. Mm -hmm. And um, as time went on, I had an MC I was working with kind of had like, we just went our different ways musically. And, um, and so I just started pursuing like cutting and, and, and scratch DJ type shit more, I think at first. And, and yeah, to answer your question, there are definitely DJs out here, but it took me a long time of having to like persevere basically until the, until the, 
the art community or music community came full circle back around to where it was like embraced out here. So there was a lot of house parties and a lot of, you know, borrowing equipment and fucking doing shit for cheap or no money or like fucking having brawls outside of parties and shit. This is the wild shit. But, but yeah, man, there's, there's definitely some dope DJs. There's a, uh, uh, my man Odyssey out here. Uh, there's a, there's another kid out here who's, why is his name? Escape? Oh, Pondo. Uh, he's really dope. And um, he's like a scratch kid. He's coming up like super fast. And it makes me happy to see, hopefully, you know, cause man, look, I'm not a motherfucking spring chicken anymore. So that's <laughs> important to somebody who really gets it in and, and is so, so active about it. it. It makes me happy to see like, like another generation coming up. It was just a, a arduous process for me to get and like maintain in this fucking tiny ass little hell on earth spot. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dope, man, dope. You know, you you touched on Thess One. Um, we're obviously big fans of people under the stairs. Um, you mentioned you guys built a studio together, but um, I want to talk a little bit about the project and and maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it's a Naufrago? Uh, yeah, Naufrago, yeah. Um, uh, tell us how that came together, man. I mean, especially you linking with Thess and just how the project came about. I had been um, working with Thess for a few, and people on the stairs and Mike for a few years. I had done some tours with them, done like a handful of remixes and even a whole mixtape for them. Um, and then Thess approached me and was like, yo, this was when music was getting flagged like crazy on Instagram and shit, right? Mm. So, I mean, not that it's not now, but it was really like bad. You post mm. a video playing like a Tame Impala song and forget it, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> so um, he's like, yo, I'm talking to somebody at insert major brand here <laughs> and uh <laughs> and it was like yo they want to do like these one-off basically kind of like a library music type of thing so he was like yo i'm gonna send you these beats you put cuts on them and we're gonna like shop them or sell them to this company for them to have audio content for their videos and um and i was like yo that sounds dope so i'm coming in under the auspices of i'm just fucking just doing some little like bloop, 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 shit whatever right but I would just basically let the track rock and then and then it came together super fast. It was like everything I was finding was like, okay, that fits, that fits, that fits. And then lo and behold, as the project evolved, he's like, oh, actually, now nah, this is going to be a full record. And in, in, in hindsight, it's better he did that way for me because I probably would have put too much pressure on myself overanalyzing mm. my cuts or trying to overflex when it doesn't call for that, you know. So me and keeping me in the dark somewhat was was beneficial because I was just thinking, oh well, I'm just gonna you know do what comes naturally, you know what I'm saying? And then it kind of evolved again into a kind of a political album to some extent, or with, with definite references to what's going on. So, yeah, man, um, yeah, that that's is my homie, uh, and I'm trying to get him to do part two, so we'll see. What's oh, dope. Up. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Nice. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your albums. Um. Land of a Thousand Chances and The Day Before. And um, I know the vinyl editions came out on Thess's uh, label, Peace Lock 70. Um, can you just kind of talk about, like, um, did you originally intend for them to come out on vinyl? Or was it, like, something that, that happened later in the cycle? Like, um, it seems like you have a lot of tracks and that the way they've been kind of um, bundled together and offered into the marketplace isn't always a, a linear line. Right, correct. Especially with the day before. Um, yeah, that was actually, we released the day before after Land of a Thousand Chances because of the fact that there were a lot of tracks that were never put on vinyl. 
Um, so th for, for people listening who might not know, the day before it came out on, on Melting Pot Music back in like 2007 or eight, something like that, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was kind of like an amalgamation of, of just random tracks that I had or had put out or whatever. And um, hence the, the name the day before. How fucking witty is that? But, um, <laughs> um, and so uh, some, some records I put out on this Japan la Japanese label called Subcontact, et cetera. Um, and so basically we, we put that on vinyl and I added a couple bonus tracks on there that were never released. Um, just so people could have the shit on record, you know? But, but yeah, uh, Land of a Thousand Chances was clearly going to be, I mean, we went, we went full tilt. Like we made motherfucking sunglasses and like stickers <laughs> and buttons and le like faux leather sleeve and had a literal Polaroid like put on. I mean, we went the extra mile because Des is a meticulous lunatic. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, man, that dude's drive is insane. So yeah, I mean, there, there was definitely a clear cut vision to put, to put that on, on vinyl for sure. But, um, but yeah, man, I mean, are you talking about the actual creation of the records? Are you talking about just like what, what, whether we wanted to put them out on, on wax initially yeah. or like? Yeah, um, more, I just, I want to get you talking about your music. You know what I mean? Uh, that we, that's what we're here for. We want to like if, hit people to it. If they haven't heard it, we want to give you a chance to talk about it. Like, uh, let, let's, let's go here next. Like, are, are they different? to you in a way that are they just the tracks that were collected are there themes are there things you wanted to express like gotcha. tell us about them gotcha. please Completely. um yeah well i mean i guess we'll, we'll look at the day before first because that came out first but um yeah essentially i don't want to call how the fuck is a motherfucker gonna have a compilation album when that's like his first album like, <laughs> <laughs> in theory but um but basically that's kind of what that was more like an introduction of like things i had done previously um and um and yeah man i mean with with uh th those tracks are i'd have to attack each one individually to talk about whatever even uh, records were on there um and and there were some that were just like releases like a bootleg 12 inch or whatever but but uh i would consider uh land of a thousand chances like my first true and living like from conception to to execution album that I wanted to make a quote unquote album that you could listen to from beginning to end and stayed in a pocket and wasn't like, you know, here's a dance track or here's the fucking, uh, you know, the guest MC fucking song or whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, sure. and it, it really, at the time, it referenced uh, a lot of personal stuff I was going through um, in my own life too. <clears throat> but um but yeah and i went nerd nerd mode big time i was googling like how how like the beatles did like certain effects on the white album and learned about automatic double tracking and i was just kind of just really in involved and engrossed in the whole thing and it ended up i would come i made the sketches or, or most of the songs in general and then went up to Thessa studio and then catawano from from crown city rockers among many other things wonderful amazing woman amazing musician and uh, and we had uh, Ken Belcher on guitar, he's a studio musician, and then Manny Quintero, who works with uh, like Capital Cities, I guess it's some group that's like pretty popular, <laughs> but at the time they were just coming out um, to come and kind of fill those holes. And I would say that's executive produced that record because he could see what I was trying to do. And uh, side note, I remember the mix down process was so fucked up, man. I mean, 
we almost went insane trying to make this record to be honest with you man like <laughs> i was just telling this story to a friend of mine like I, at one point he was in his in his crib like up in up in san pedro and uh mixing the shit down and he called me or he sent me a file on my phone i listened to it i was at the by the beach on vacation or something and i'm like yeah man it sounds dope he's like yeah i, I turned the I, ch I changed the hi-hats. Let me know what you think. And I listened to him. I'm like, yeah, it sounds dope, man. And he fucking texted me back. Like, I didn't do shit. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> and I, just to show, because your your ears start just being like, what right. the fuck? The longer you hear stuff. So, you know, I'm sure he enjoyed that process a lot. Because it was like hours and hours of like, <laughs> I'm like, can you just do this? And it, I, yeah, it was ridiculous. But in the end, I mean, I'm, I hope uh, the body of that album alone is worth all the shit that we went through, you know? But um, yeah, it was a very, it was a fucking, it was kind of a painful process to be honest with you, in general, both it emotionally. It seems very intricate taking that many pieces yeah. and sewing them into something that has, has meaning. Um, I, I see the records behind you. I know you're a record collector. Uh, what does it mean to you that now uh, that is kind of a rare record? I was just looking it up on Discogs before the interview, like, Cats want 150 bucks for your record. How does that feel? It, nice. It's wild. And, and you know, I, I know people do this whole record store day. Let me fucking do four copies of some like super rare shit for a billion dollars. It's going to be impossible to find. That was never the goal. It was just kind of like testing the marketplace out because it was like, yo, I mean, I don't know how many we can move. So let's fucking do it like this. And the shit was hella expensive to, to press up. Went mm. to Dorado Packaging in, in LA who helped us do the, the cover for Land of a Thousand Chances. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of money, you know what I'm saying? So so that was kind of reflective on that. It feels crazy to have a quote unquote rare record. Um, but, uh, and, and, and you know, I just sent a copy of, we did an Ace Hotel pressing for Coachella one year. Oh, wow. In hotel rooms. But I guess people didn't know they could take them with them. And by the way, man, Mad Lib came down, he was, he was there that time. And he came down and he gave me props while I was DJing wow. like, about the record. So he listened nice. to it in the, in the thing. So I was like, all right, that's, that's a good enough cosign for me, at least. <laughs> Did you guys uh, leave them in the drawer like Bibles next to the bed? No. Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> like, piece of paper outlining everything. And we, we use like the parking, the parking pass for like the label itself and um, at Ace Hotel and all that shit. But but yeah, and, and I literally just sent some records to some random dude who DM'd me and I was like, he's like, yo, what do I owe you? Because I, I rarely send records out to people, to be honest with you. And um, I think I just backed myself in a corner of this conversation and had to come. <laughs> somehow it was probably, I was probably lit in a DM when I like, yeah, man, sure, whatever. And uh, I was talking to somebody here and I'm like, you know what? I'm not even gonna... And, motherfuckers don't be flooding me with free record requests by the way but i was just like yo what about just being nice and just doing something nice just to do it just to do something nice for somebody and not need you know even though the financial strap situation for everybody right now especially djs is a very real thing mm -hmm. but it, it just kind of dawned on me last night like yo i don't need anything i just want to do something that's cool for somebody you know what i mean that's awesome man yeah. Yeah, totally. Anyways, totally. It's a brand. I beware, I take like long paths to get to my points. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, we're here for it. We're here for it. Right. You know, I wanted to just bring everything to the present a little bit. Uh, you and I were talking before the program and I was like, yo, you know, like, what do you got going on? And you mentioned a mysterious scratch record that you're working on with some household DJ names. Can you reveal anything about that? You don't have to give too much away, but that and the beat tape and just kind of what you're working on like what can we expect coming up 
Word. Um, yeah, man. So that's like in the forefront right now. There's um, we're shooting for first quarter of next year um, to put the scratch record out, and it's it's um, gonna be done uh, through private stock records. My homie Zimmy up in Portland. Shout out to Zimmy, and he's kind of spearheading this whole thing. And um, I don't want to get too much into like who's gonna be on it, but there they'll definitely be. Um, I think it's gonna be one of like a series. So it's the first of a series. Hopefully, we'll see how this goes. Um, so, and yeah, man. I mean, it's basically gonna be. I think how many DJs? Like four to six contributing tracks and scratch sentences and shit like that. So it should be interesting. It might be a so, drum and bass dude. There might be some, you know, boom bap shit or who knows. So, um, and the name is Perfecto. I'm not going to say it because I was like, dog, how has no one thought of that shit? Before? Oh, okay, okay. All right, <laughs> but, uh, we'll, we'll be waiting for it, yeah. Yep, it's called Day is Butt Naked on the cover breaks. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, so there's that. And I, I've been sitting on um, a, a bunch of just, to me, they're old or they're like not finished or whatever. Um, that probably could use a little tweaking here and there. But I've been slowly going back through, I mean, man, there's like probably a hundred different things I can like fuck with. And to try to, to try to make some kind of semblance of, a, of another project, because man, I'll be honest with you, dude, making that record was like, I don't know how candid to be on here. Like, I don't know if you guys want the fucking tea or what, but- uh, All day. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, look, I've never even said this in public and I was like contemplating whether I should. Man, by the end of that record, before it came out, I I, I don't want to say I had like a nervous breakdown, but I definitely kind of like snapped because it was so, so personal to me and I was terrified about how it was going to be received right. by strangers and shit. Because I was like, I really did feel like I was being completely out there with my shit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, man, it ended, I ended up in like a fucking... I was getting like, I, I went too far one night and like ended up driving in. Oh, yeah, I'm not gonna get all into that whole story. But anyways, I ended up in a goddamn like treatment spot for like a month. Cause I was oh, like, fuck. You know, like for, for, you know, sub cause I was just like coping in the wrong way. How's that for some tea? Fucking pour a goddamn jug of that shit. <laughs> but, um, land, of, land of a thousand panic attacks, huh? Dude, land of a thousand breakdowns and shit. <laughs> so it, it fucking, you know, and I, obviously there was a culmination of a lot of shit. I mean, my marriage was like all crazy and it was like, it was all just fucking kind of raining down. And then with that added pressure, I was like, yo, so, so that happened. So after that experience, and that's the reason I had a point to fucking make, after that experience, I've been somewhat apprehensive, at least trying to to not replicate, but do something on that, at least that personal scale or emotional scale for me personally, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so, I, but in the meantime, I have a bunch of stuff. I was working on like an all live thing in around early 2016, just by myself and, and like, man, playing drums, playing everything until I couldn't, I couldn't play, you know, I, I can't play guitar and bass and shit, but, uh, so I'm going back through those tracks. There's a lot of live stuff to um, to get some help on, you know, with with other musicians like Saint Ezekiel and other people I've been working with. Um, so yeah, man. I mean, I, I don't have a concrete definition of what that's going to be. I hate to say the fucking term beat tape because I mean that shit sounds played out. <laughs> but, um, but you know, there'll be some music definitely at some point. And it's also, man, it's so chaotic right now. Like, I don't know what what mm-hmm. mediums to go through. 
you go through Bandcamp, you go through, I mean, I, I have my own, my own ways of doing things that I, that I you know, s put my music out through. Mm -hmm. But for something like this, you know, I don't know. And I don't know if you guys want to get into the whole fucking live streaming DJing situation or anything <laughs> at that point, but man, we can, we can have all of it. So let me know. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm still, saying, like, like, like outlets for, for us now are just really weird. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, for sure. I don't know. Do motherfuckers buy music? Do they just stream music? Should I go on Twitch? Should I fucking not blow myself out by just doing the same shit all the time for everyone to have access right. to all the time? There's a lot yeah. of variables that go yeah. through my mind with all this shit, you know? Yeah, I don't I don't think anyone knows. Um, we, we don't get into it a ton on the show, but like a lot of our close friends are DJs and well, I, I talk to them about it just in, in real life. And so I think just finding what works for you. But really, I just wanted to like say like, thanks for, you know, sharing some of that about um, the, the kind of stuff that came out during after the album. And um, oh, I just I think um, it's important for people to know how much this music means to the people who created and that mm -hmm. that anxiety around the acceptance of it is hugely common. And that it's, it's, it's okay. You know what I mean? It's like that, that always that no one knows how it's gonna how it's going to be received and especially as you were saying the the sand is shifting beneath your feet like totally no one knows what to do um the one thing i will say is that the people who work tight with in kind of the underground hip-hop world through the podcast really seem to be leaning more towards the band camp model of retaining ownership keeping things off of dsps and serving a smaller but more committed audience and like avoiding spotify etc cetera, etc cetera. All, all, and I will say, as a listener, it's not my favorite thing. As a business person, and as like a someone who wants artists to be able to eat food and wear clothes and go, you know, drive their car, I totally get it. So, anyway, that's just kind of a little bit about what we're hearing. No, I mean that's that's a very good point because when you do something like like let's say I will probably do some exclusivity situation with this whatever next project that this is that and I might I might not have it on streaming. I listen to you know I use Spotify. I also get raped by Spotify. So it's kind of this fucking uh, um, really destructive relationship that I have with Spotify. <laughs> <It's like laughs> that I have with Spotify. But I, you know, I use it a lot because I find so much shit on there and I can just like save it. But especially, just got some like obscure French Israeli, like there's a bunch of random shit and a lot of new super dope stuff. That's what, that's really what I've been focusing on are a lot of new groups. But, um, but, but yeah, man, I mean, I think, you have to factor in because again, man, Spotify is, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a necessity at this stage kind of, but it's also, it just doesn't really pay you in any kind of living wages way at all. Mm -hmm. So the Bandcamp model might be something for me to look at um, just to have a one-off thing, but, or maybe I'll just do like a physical pressing. But again, it's like, there's, there's just, there's a lot of motherfucking variables. And I'm also like, like, I don't know. I'm just trying to fucking live day to day at this point and maintain my sanity <laughs> under the circumstances. But um, so, yeah. And a shout out to everybody I know who's out there pushing. I mean, um, you talk about the playlist retreat, but we have a group chat with like 100 plus of us since August of last year. And it still goes on every day. So, so. And I see people out there doing things, scratch bastard. Ellie's like, you know, the beat junkies, everybody out here really pushing. And I think it's 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 not only a a point of staying relevant but it's for their own sanity as well you know mm -hmm. and um 
and and that's a really important factor i think for people to look to art for for a multitude of of, of reasons you know what i'm saying so mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean back to the i'm like what is the point at this point i don't even fucking know but but yeah man you know we're just in uncharted waters and no one really knows how to navigate this so we're all kind of just like the titanic flipped over and we're like treading water in life <laughs> after shit and seeing who's gonna make a fucking boat to get us back to shore so yeah i don't know man well well man there it is you know we just want to thank you for your candor thank you for your time um we're gonna you know we're gonna keep our eyes out for the upcoming record that you're talking about the mysterious record and you know um yeah man thank you thank you so much man oh man no doubt and thank you guys for having me and uh and giving me a, a platform for me to uh just have run on sentences and <laughs> anytime, anytime, anytime. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, DJ Day, King of Palm Springs. Appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Peace. Thank you, man. Dad bod rap pod. That was our conversation with DJ Day. Dave, um, give maybe give folks a little bit of context on on how you know DJ Day and kind of how he he came into our our dad bod universe. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I certainly had had heard of DJ Day because of, just from being a fan. So I was a fan of uh, Land of a Thousand Dances and. Um, you know, uh, he was on Soul Strut and stuff, and he's just a digger. And we we kind of just met online through Twitter, like um, for those PO, POW uh, pieces that I do. He tends to uh, comment on those, and we just sort of nerd out. And you know, he's he's sort of the king of Palm Springs. He's sort of like this reclusive dude. He has a relationship with S1 from People Under the Stairs. Um, they have a project out. I think it came out a couple of years back. We talked a little bit about that, so that was really cool. Um, it was really, it was really cool to just to see him in his element in his um, studio. Uh, there was like a Michael Jackson figure in the background. It was dope, man. It was really good. It was an interview that was like full of candor. Um, he was just really open about everything. So yeah, man, it was really, really good to get a moment of his time. Um, yeah, man. Nate, what did you think? Uh, he was so cool. Like uh, totally. we, do, we do about three or four interviews a year where pretty quickly into it, it ceases being an interview and it just feels like people talking. Mm-hmm. Like I remember the first time it, it really happened where we all took note of it was when we talked to Blockhead. And it was just like, I have questions about Labor Days, but mostly I just want to shoot the shit with you because you're hella cool. Totally. Um, so this this felt like one of those kind of situations to me. I'm, I'm a fan of DJ Day's music. We used to frequent some of the same message boards. Dave talked about Soul Strut a little bit. I spent a lot of time on there when I was a record store clerk and not pricing records. I was just reading, reading other people's posts and stuff. He's a really talented instrumental mm-hmm. hip hop producer. Um, mm-hmm. And he just has an interesting story. And I, I, I was a little surprised but really welcomed the candor he brought to this interview and just like totally. think he has a has a really interesting story to tell and so I, I was glad to talk to him and I feel like um, he's someone who's 
life, career, kind of age range demo. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's like a he's like a solid in our wheelhouse yeah. kind of dude. Like totally, he's totally. one of us. You know what I mean? Totally. And he's been around too. So like if you dig a little bit deeper, like you'll he he has stories for days. So um, and you know on the interview you heard some of them. So that was really cool. Yeah, the the traveling stories are pretty crazy, especially now when like I have no hope of ever getting on an airplane in the next eighteen months or so. <laughs> it was just cool to hear. Like remember when you had to worry about how heavy your luggage was? Like right, especially right. on record digging trips. That's like no joke, dude. Totally. Oh, totally. I didn't think about that. And um, he has he has some upcoming yeah. stuff out too, which he touched on. So that's really exciting to hear too. And um, we have that exclusive track that he gave us uh, that we're gonna unveil. So that that's really cool. I believe it's like a, a large professor remix that no one has heard. So that's really cool. It was just like like Nate said, we're just shooting the shit with the homie that was just a dad bod, you know. That's dope. That's dope. And this episode has kind of uh, you know morphed into a a vinyl centric episode we've got a, an interview with a couple of filmmakers who just put out um, a movie called vinyl nation coming up in just a bit if you listen to this program you definitely heard us talk about uh, vinyl nate um, being our resident um, vinyl snob the guy the guy who looks at you sideways when you come into the record store um, <laughs> nate give us give us a state what is the state of digging in 2020 like you've been in the game for for a hot minute. Have you what heard is... of discogs? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Search function. Yeah, yeah it's tough, man. It's That's tough it. Time, tough time for the for right record collecting culture right now. It's it's just the the shops That's... are kind of inaccessible. It doesn't feel comfortable being in public. Um, the ones that are open really need our support. Like the like these things will go away if we don't we don't spend money at them. Like you have to vote with your dollars right now. If you're a record collector and there's any way to support your local record shop, buying a t-shirt online, getting down there and digging when it feels safe. Most have like limits on how many people can be inside. The ones I visited are really stringent on mask policies and hand sanitizer everywhere. So I've been, I've been digging a couple of times during the pandemic. It's, it's tough. It's not, it's not what it used to be. And a big part of the experience of going to the record store is talking to the they're usually dudes uh it's it's talking to the dudes right (laughs) so like one time i was at needle to the groove which is our local record shop and owned by great friends of ours and like you know somewhere i previously spent a lot of time and um it's like you see somebody you kind of know and it's like you have the mask and you're like the hat and i'm like kind of ducking it and then it's like somebody wants to come up and talk and like slap five and it's like nah back up we're not doing that yeah it's like I'll give you the elbow like as far away as I can and then sanitize yeah. the elbow and then <laughs> like go go to the other end of the thing um so it's it's just tough it's such a social thing I do find the quality of flipping through I think I talked about this with DJ Day and I'm not sure mm-hmm. if this part was on the part we're recording or putting on the show or not the act of flipping through records to be very meditative like I've spent right. a lot of my life doing that and part of it is I'm not zoning out. I'm really zoned in. Exactly. Like, that's that record. That's that guy. That's right. that thing. That's that label. That's that drummer. That's that rapper. That's that cover. That's the alternate version. That's the 12 inch. That's the white label. Like there's all these pink things pinging around my mind of associations that mm-hmm. I have with the records. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had that, but I sold it. Oh, I actually kind of need a copy of that. I want to give it to someone. 
let me put this in my stack. I probably am not going to buy it, but I do want to carry it around for like an hour. It's like, there's just like a lot of decisions being made and like a lot of like minutia that is all internal that I'm dealing with when I'm flipping through these stacks. And if I, if I really have the time, I like to go to basically every single section except for classical of a record store and basically flip through every single record is that right at, oh, at times, every single record wow them, yeah i mean there have been times where i've done that there's also been times where i ran in bought something off an end cap and ran out but if if i'm making my day about that and something i realized when i stopped working in the record store and just like had to like i didn't have records coming to me all the time i had to go seek them Mm. is I really like looking through unorganized records. That's, that's the best thing. Like mm. a big pile of records on a sidewalk or like a flea market that hasn't been hit by anyone else yet or like no one has graded them or priced them or anything is like that's where I get like, I'm happy. Totally. Like I'm happy well, in that moment to like make all the decisions myself. Well, that's like oh. the, raw, that's the raw uncut, you know exactly. what I mean? A, a exactly. pile in a record barn, you know exactly. what I mean? Like, all, like all, all, the, all the synapses that you were talking about that fire off, like when it's, a, when it's like a dirt pile of records, sometimes that's the best shit, dude. It's the fish scale. Yup, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so but PSA, buy something from your record store, whether it's Discogs, their own online outlet, like just send them Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, like, that if you want these places to survive, we have to support them. It's a tough time for them, but you know, there's, Absolutely. there's more records than ever. There's more record collectors than ever. There's a lot of people getting into the game for various um, reasons as we kind of get right. into interview. And I, I don't, I'm not like a shut the door behind me person. Like I welcome all people into record collecting culture. I'm not going to quiz you on like, Oh, you're wearing that shirt name three of their records. Like I'm not, right, right, right. I don't care about stuff like that, but I will say, um, it was more fun when I got into it and I didn't know everything and I, not that I know everything now, but I didn't feel like I knew everything and everything mm -hmm. was this like endless sense of discovery. Mm -hmm. so it was just like every, every new thing I got led to 10 new things. And now it's kind of like, I, I know the ground rules and like totally. of what I'm looking for. So it's more specialized and everything is more expensive. Right. Oh man. Yeah. So that, that is, that is uh, probably the, primary reason why I'm not more into it. I definitely had a, a phase, because um, I, I worked at a record store as well. Uh, and I feel like it was more sweet, innocent, and fun when nobody really knew too much, when the store itself didn't know too much. Totally, totally. Um, that was when, and there wasn't necessarily an internet. Now I know we sound fucking ancient right now. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Long ago. It, I mean, as, as a Gen Xer, I, I, I lived half of my life without the internet. Um, and I feel like for me, it was the, the, the mystery. Like, you just didn't know. Now I kind of know. Now you, everything's been decoded. Not everything, right. but things have been decoded to a degree where I see a record and I go, oh, that's that break. But there right. was a time right. when you just had to get it and like right. figure it yeah. out. You right. know what I mean? Remember, yeah. like, remember, he, like, finding out what the cover of Skull Snaps looked like. It was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's literally it, skulls. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. Th those those moments are no longer. But so I so I hear what you're saying. But yeah, I still find it to be such a meditative uh, experience, man. Just have you been coming up online, Dave? You have your mm -hmm. like little saved searches coming. Oh yeah, up? totally. But actually, last week I was in Needle to the Groove as well. That uh, Nate mentioned. It's our um, a store that our friends. 
uh, run. And it was, I was there for like two, two and a half hours, just me and Tucker, shout out to Tucker. And um, it was, it was so relaxing to be in there and no one else was in there. It was just me and him. And I went straight to the new arrivals and it's all kinds of random shit. And, you know, uh, our homies that run the place, I mean, it's very well curated. So once you go in there, you go into a section, you know what you're going to expect. And to Nate's point, I like not knowing what to expect. So that was just really fun. And I literally I, went through every fucking 45. You know, it was great. 45s right now. I'm going yeah. to tell a little Dave story. Uh, when I used to work at the record store, uh, Streetlight, when I, in my, my previous life, uh, Dave and I were just getting to know each other. And sometimes I could tell, like, Dave had probably been going there for a long time, long before we knew each other. It was like a, a place he went to, like, get away from the world. So, like, <laughs> it took me a while to realize, like, he didn't want to talk to me. That's why, that's not why you were there. So like when Dave would come in to dig, it would be like late night on like a, right before we closed and he'd just be like going through the records and like everybody knows Dave, everybody loves Dave. So we'd all want to go chop it up with Dave and like linger in the sections. And then you just get this vibe of like, okay, dude, like <laughs> I'm, I'm here to look through records. Like not, not like chop it up with you guys. I'll see you guys at the bar on Friday. Right now I'm on the lookout for records. And it, it was an interesting little moment in our friendship. <laughs> we became like super close friends where I'd be like, fuck you. I don't care if you want me to. I'm telling you my story um, <laughs> where I was like, okay, okay. I'm getting like a standoffish vibe, but actually I respect it. I'm like that when I'm at the record store too. Like I'm here for totally. a reason. It's not a social call. Totally, I, I, totally. As we get into in this interview a little bit, like there was especially a time in like my early 20s when I was just out of college and I was kind of underemployed and really, really into records where like, I, I had like a disease. Like I was addicted to buying records and sorting records and eventually selling and flipping records and just learning everything I could about records. I was just like singularly focused in my life on records for a couple of years. And then I don't know if I've ever told the story on the pod before, but the reason I got a record shelf for the first time is because my dad came to visit me at my little house I shared with my DJ buddies and my room was 100% record crates with a path from the door to the bed. And it was like, <laughs> you had to step over records to get to the TV, to like get to my clothes, like to do everything. And he came in with yeah. me and like, you guys all know my dad, he's just like hella cool, but he's like, okay, dude, like, <laughs> what are we doing about this? Like, you can't live like this. Like, how does one solve this problem? And I'm like, there's this shelf. They're from yeah. Ikea. I can't yeah, really yeah. afford it. And I, he was like, tell me what it's called. And I wrote it down on like a post-it note. And he went and bought it and drove back. And he was like, here, Man. you need this. And so- Do this yeah. now. Ever oh, since that's, so dope. Multiple, that's so dope. Multiple Ikea expedites in my house. But yeah, it was just really funny. And like, uh, it will surprise no one. I did not have a girlfriend at this time. <laughs> yeah, because you lost her. She was a missing person behind your- uh, It's like a carcass in there. <laughs> behind your records, bro. Shout out, to, uh, shout out to Mr. Bob, who basically said, you're getting a shelf or we're putting you in therapy. Like, Pretty much. Do, Pretty much. Like, shout out to one, Bob. One or the other. Um, so the, the Vinyl Nation documentary, you guys were able to talk to the filmmakers, not exclusively a hip hop focused uh, movie, but kind of covering uh, vinyl digging culture more generally. Um, and so they came on to talk to us a little bit about it and kind of give us a perspective on, on people make movies. That's wild to me. 
that people make movie. I'm like, why don't you guys just make a YouTube video? Like, why? Like, a movie is a big fucking thing. Yeah, um, we, we heard about this through uh, Morgan Rhodes, who's right. one of the talking heads in the documentary, along with Oliver Wong, and um, there's there's some other really cool people who they got as talking heads to interview mm-hmm. in this. They actually filmed a couple scenes at Needle to the Groove, the record. Oh, really? Okay. About mm-hmm. so it's always cool to see, you know, the home the hometown. Um, yeah. And looking looking good, looking stocked up, but um, yeah, they I think they they wanted to come on. And yeah, so like, sure we're certainly open to talking about record collecting and, you know, that aspect of it. Um, and uh, it was very interesting to watch the film knowing you're going to get to talk to the people. Mm-hmm. Who the the filmmakers. Done, like, several books at this point. It's like, I'm not just reading this for pleasure. I'm reading it to like make content and to like get into it a little bit, like mm-hmm. take, take it a step deeper. So I found that interesting. What about you, dude? Yeah, uh, totally the same. I mean, a uh, shout out to, uh, Morgan Rhodes and Oliver Wong as well. Um, I, I liked how you sort of um, approach the whole record digging, but it is sort of anti-record digging, the movie. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the, the emphasis of, of record digging is not to get the U2 splatter record store day vinyl. You know what I mean? It's 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 to go or back it and wasn't get like for us, it, like, right? It, it wasn't a new new class of people who've been drawn into right. the record world who who have every right to do that, and it is helping really, the culture totally. survive. But it, it's it's morphing it in a way that I'm slightly uncomfortable with because I'm 100 agreed, and I think it was a generous person. <laughs> 100% agreed. And I think it was a little bit overemphasized as well. I mean, you and I had spoken about this, but, you know, like when they filmed A Needle to the Groove, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. But also you gotta, when you go to a record store, you talk to the dudes who work at the record store. Otherwise, it's a missed opportunity. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's like you go to a record store and it's just your background setting. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that was a missed opportunity. And that was something that I felt when I was watching the film. But otherwise, Super well done, super, super professional. Uh, Christopher Boone and Kevin Smokler were really nice dudes and it was really- Very nice, nice dudes. Ear, like, you know, the, really like, nice to get their ear. And even when you approach them regarding, you know, sort of the qualms you've had with it, I mean, their responses were gracious and it was great. For sure. All right. This is, uh, it's been great to do at the movies with uh, Nate Ebert <laughs> and, Dave, and Dave Siskel. Shout out. Um, so, Let's do it. And just a, a, a note for other filmmakers out there listening to our podcast. If your uh, film that you're working on kind of straddles the worlds of uh, hip hop and rap music and vinyl and such, you know, reach out to us. We, we'd love to have you on the program if the movie's dope. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into our interview with the filmmakers of Vinyl nation. Dad Bod Rap Pod, bringing you the dopest 
Insight Weekly, and um, this week is no different. Uh, we care about wax. We care about vinyl. We got Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone, co-directors from Vinyl Nation. Um, it's an it's a upcoming film that digs into the resurgence and explores um, vinyl and what technology says about the relationship to music. And um, here we go. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us, gentlemen. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, um, I just wanted to start it off. I mean, uh, we were talking to Kevin a little bit about um, your first uh, Record Store Day experience. But Christopher, tell us about yours. Uh, my first Record Store Day experience? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will, I will have to admit, no one's actually asked me that. I was late to the Record Store Day party, to be honest, also because I didn't get into collecting records until about 2014. But I wouldn't really drag myself out to Record Store Day. So it wasn't until we actually started doing research for the movie, I was like, okay, I have to finally do it. So I guess my first one was, it was when we were doing research, it was 2018. So it was here in Albuquerque. Um, we don't have like a huge, like tons of record stores in Albuquerque. It's the one reason why the city's not in the film. <laughs> I don't know I live here, but I went to Charlie's 33s and got in line with everybody else. I think I was like 23 in line. There were probably about 50 to 60 people by the time it opened. Um, they don't uh, get a ton of releases, but it was fun to kind of go in and just, you know, mainly just take advantage of the sale of the used records. So that's what I did that day. And, I think I walked out the door with Indigo Girls' first album on that day. I'm trying to remember what else I got used. I got a few things used. And then just for the hell of it, because I wanted to walk out with an RSD thing, whatever was left, I ended up with the uh, picture disc of Madonna's first album, the replica of the Japanese version, just because, Mm. like, why not? So that's what I ended up having. But yeah, it was more just like hang out, talk to people online, see how they're doing. Right on, right on. Nice. So um, thank you guys for providing us with a screener of the film. I think Dave and I both checked it out um, last week and I, I made a couple of notes and this is for my, my fellow kind of older, crustier vinyl heads at 5.5 minutes into the film. Someone talks about the smell of records, which is something I'm obsessed with and that someone called me a pervert for discussing <laughs> on our Instagram live a couple weeks ago. <laughs> And then uh, it took until at one hour and three minutes into the film for the first time someone uh, describes record collecting as a disease, which is one, one that I have and one that I've lived with for, uh, for, for quite a while now. So um, it, why don't you guys talk us through what your approach was? This is not the kind of standard record collecting documentary like somebody does like a Joe Broussard Blue 78s thing, somebody does like a um, Dustin Grooves, like, um, you know, 90s record collectors with um, garages and storage units full of records. You're focused on a new kind of collector. Can you walk us through how you ended up there and kind of how you're approaching the film? Yeah, sure. This is Kevin. Um, first, we knew we weren't going to be able to have too many people in this movie who had, you know, 15 and 20,000 unit record collections with entire wings of their homes or basements dedicated to it because, like, Chris and I don't have that experience. Like I, I, I live in a place where square footage is far too precious for that for that sort of collecting. And and I think and Chris came to the hobby later and um, and 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 has has fewer hoarding tendencies than I do. Um, so uh, so that wasn't our experience. And we also knew that the records as a kind of obsessive eccentric hobby 
was the product of records being a uh, kind of a priesthood, you know, kind of a, a, a thing that a very small select group of people were into. Um, in other words, a pre-vinyl comeback phenomenon. Um, because if there had been a comeback, obviously it hadn't been exactly the same people who were interested in before, like the math doesn't work for that. So uh, we figured the, no the kinds of people who are interested in records had grown and diversified, and that story was really intriguing to us. In fact, we thought that would be like when, when people said, so what's your movie Vinyl Nation about? We would say it's about the expansion and diversifying of record collectors. Um, and and that's, that's the, the mistake we later found out that every documentary filmmaker makes in that they think they know what their movie is about before they start filming it. Um, because why would you spend the money and the time otherwise? Um, and as our post-production team who had done this sort of thing before uh, told us, no, you won't know what it's about. And, and then you'll be somewhere in post-production. You'll be like, oh, now I understand. Now I understand what it's about. It's like, it's like finding out like what records you're making when you're in like the final mastering stages. And like, and we're like, what nonsense, like that's not going to happen to us. And of course that's exactly what happened to us. Um, so we ended up with now when people say, well, what is your movie Vinyl Nation about? We say it's about human connection and, and, and the record is a metaphor for, um, for, the, for music made, made flesh, that, um, uh, the, the universal human language made real uh, and, and, and tangible and therefore about human connection. It, it doesn't take long for people who kind of rhapsodize about records and record collecting to begin to speak metaphysically about it. Um, I think that you guys did um, a kind of interesting move in the record in the movie where you focused not only on record stores, record collectors, but you go into the label side of it, the people who are ordering the records, and you go into the manufacturing side of things, which I, I love factory footage since I was a little kid watching 321 Contact and the vinyl record um, medium in particular has a, a very compelling visual journey through the, the production line. But there's something else about records and people describe it as warmth and they describe it as tactility and they describe it in a lot of different ways. But Christopher, do you want to take a crack at this one? Like how much, how many hours of footage do you guys have of people just like doing that rhapsodizing thing of just like talking about how much their records mean to them. Uh, a lot, a lot. <laughs> I think we did 45 dedicated interviews and that doesn't include any of the on the fly interviews we did at record store day at Mills record company in Kansas city or at Austin record convention. And I think we, I think Kevin asked that question of every single person. So, I mean, and every one of them is going to go on and on when they answer that question. So yes, we have hours of footage. Um, we condensed a lot of that down in an early scene in the film. And we just, the note card that went up on the board was records are magic. That's what it was. And so it was that kind of encapsulate the best nuggets of people telling, telling everyone like what makes records so special to them. And what's really fascinating to me is the person in the film that says records are magic is somebody who knows how records are physically made because he has his own lathe. <laughs> he cuts, <laughs> he directly cuts into vinyl. So it's, it's not even the process of how it's manufactured typically, like he's making one-off records. So he knows exactly how records are made, but they're magic uh, to him and to, to all of us too. Cause there is something about just taking the record out, putting it on the turntable and putting the needle down. That experience is just something that's not replicated with any other 
physical format. And it's surely not replicated when you are scrolling through your Spotify or your iTunes playlist. Um, But we talk about, you know, how people use those things. Kevin and I do too. We both use Spotify to listen to music and to audition new things. But when you really want to spend time with music and, and have that connection with music, it's the vinyl record, essentially, that does it the best for everybody in our film and so many more people who have discovered our film as well. Nice, I think nice. we um, first heard about your film through uh, Morgan Rhodes, who's uh, kind of a podcasting peer of ours and one of the best music supervisors in the world and possessor of the world's most amazing voice and just someone we're a fan of. Um, you also had Oliver Wong as one of your talking heads, who's um, someone we have a long history with and who uh, gave us some really great advice um, when we were crafting our podcast and someone we really respect. Um, as a collector and writer and professor. And then uh, you have a couple people who are not hip hop people who I wanted to kind of see how you found them. I found the most engaging guest and it's really guests plural when she lets him talk, but it's Ashley C. Ford, who's a writer who my wife is really into and who she follows on Twitter and then her husband, Kel. Um, How did you come to them and what do you think they brought to the film? Yeah, this is Kevin. Ashley, I, I knew from social media and we had, we had a few friends in common just because uh, uh, writing is my day job. So, so we had a few friends in common in that, in that area, professionally speaking. And I also knew that she was, I also knew that she was Midwestern like I was and her husband was Midwestern. And so, you know, when Midwesterners run into each other, they they call soda pop and they talk about, you know, they talk about WGN in Chicago and shit like that. And like, um, and so uh, we had, we had been friendly, but I I wouldn't say we were friends. And then she posted this very beautiful picture uh, some years back of her and her husband sitting on, on the couch on Saturday afternoon, listening to records. And I was like, Oh my God, she's a record person. They're record people. And that was when we, I got in touch with her and said, would you be willing to be in our movie and talk about talk about records? Because I, I had this. It was clear from the post that records were a big, were a big, a physical manifestation of their relationship, uh, and that was a point of view we really wanted in our movie: is records as kind of one of the many glues that that holds a family together. Um, and uh, and so we had Ashley and Kelly, who are uh, a young uh, young married couple. We had. Um, we had an 11-year-old kid in this movie who, uh, who, where records are a big thing that his family uh, shares together. Uh, and then when we were filming at, uh, at Mills Records in Kansas City on Record Store Day 2019, and when we were filming at the Austin Record Convention, even though there was every kind of person there you can imagine, uh, we definitely had like an order that we whispered in our cinematographer Sherry's ear where we were like, if you see a kid, just follow the kid. Like, make, you know, don't be weird about it, but like... <laughs> <laughs> but like if if you see a kid crate digging, we want that kid in in, in the movie. So um, because that was that was a point of view we really wanted that this was not that this was not some hobby frozen in time that it that it in fact had a very bright future. Hmm. Perfect, perfect. Well, you know, you guys mentioned a little bit about um, put, putting the the film together and sort of expectations and having to change those as as things go along and stuff. But I I just kind of wanted to know. The, what was the moment when you guys got together and sort of, you know, the light bulb went off and you guys decided to embark on this documentary? 
So Kevin was the one who brought the idea to me. Um, I have a background in narrative filmmaking. So I've made narrative feature. I've made a number of shorts. I've worked on other people's projects, but I've never done documentaries. And um, Kevin and I went to college together. We were two years apart at college, but we knew each other that way. And we reconnected over social media. And as particularly when Kevin was uh, putting together a book and then going on book tour for that book called Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies. And he was looking to tour the country and have some events. And I said, hey, why don't you come out to Albuquerque? And um, we have a great local cinema, Guild Cinema here. Um, I know the, the owner, we can put on some special screenings. You know, we'll do the Breakfast Club, we'll Q&A, we'll books. And Kevin said, yeah, that's came out, had a I'm screwing really well. And he's like, let's do it again. So we did it like three or times um, over the course of like a, over a year, I think. And um, when it was all said and done, uh, Kevin said, hey, listen, I got this idea for a documentary. Like, what do you think? And I said, I, I've never made a documentary, but tell me your idea. And so he pitched Vinyl Nation to me and like I said, I didn't get into collecting records until about 2014, but I had worked in a record store right out of college. Music's always been a big part of my life. Um, but the reason I was attracted to his idea was um, I have a teenage daughter. She's 17 now, but about a year after my wife and I got our turntable, she got her turntable mm -hmm. and she started collecting records. And I just find it fascinating that um, someone who never had any relationship with music in a physical format um, goes from iTunes and Spotify to buying records. Um, and they are important to her, like an artist or a band that means something to her, she's gonna wanna go buy that record on vinyl. Um, and I, I just want to explore like, who are all these new fans coming to to vinyl records and also who are the people like me who you know have memories of records as we were growing up but i didn't collect mm -hmm. them i was just just a little too young to be in that first wave i got cassettes and cds so what is going on like why are, why are records so popular again so i was interested when kevin brought it to me and i thought it would be something that a number of people would be uh would would we would be able to engage a lot of people, I thought, with, with the story. So that's why I sparked to it right away. That being said, we had to talk over the phone for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, at least almost a full year before we realized we, we actually had something. We're, right, Kevin, at what point in time do, did we actually say, like, uh, this is going to be a movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we started talking in, like, March of 2018, and since we don't live in the same place, we, we had like a standing appointment on Friday mornings to just be like, okay, have we, have we, you know, have we, have we advanced the, 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 the Stratego pieces, you know, another step or two, you know, are we closer to something here, you know, and, um, and we would just nod and like, we'd give each other homework assignments and we'd like, and, 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 and somewhere in the fall, I, I think it was in the fall, um, where Chris was like, well, listen, like, if we want this, if, if like, we want this movie to come out at some point, and we want to have any control over when that actually happens, um, we have to start thinking about, like, we have to work backwards and start saying, okay, well, we need to finish post-production at this point, and then pre and then principal photography at this point, and then pre-production, because he had done this before, and I hadn't, so I, I, I had no sense of how to sort of project manage the whole thing. Um, but the conclusion we came to from all of that is Chris was like, well, we really should have started filming last Wednesday. And, um, and so I was like, well, damn, like, like then we got to go, we got to go put a pitch deck together and like raise money and talk to investors and all that kind of stuff. And so, so that was pretty much winter of 2018. And then 
we made all our appointments for, we made all our investor calls for January and, and, and early February. Um, and then we were, we, we started filming the third week of March. So, um, so the whole thing, on, on the one hand, the whole thing feels like when we talk to other documentary filmmakers, the whole thing feels like it happened really fast. And they say, wow, you guys moved really fast. And, and yeah, like, I feel like, I feel like on the one hand, we blinked and it was over. And on the other hand, like, if, if you look at like, if you actually like lined up on the floor, how many things had to get done for us to reach this point? Like, you'd just be, you'd just be like, like the Phantom Tollbooth, man. You'd just be like following the line forever and then making a left turn. Like, um, that's how, so it, those two feelings are, are seem contradictory, but I, I would imagine, like, that's kind of what we heard from, from other people who, who make documentaries. Like, like I, I think Spike Lee in his, in his Do the Right Thing book said, it feels like just a, a very dim light at the end of a very long tunnel. And then before you know it, you're out. And you're not you're not actually sure how you got there. <laughs> right on. I, I want to do something a, a little weird. You guys seem like very nice guys, and we liked the film enough to have you on our show. And like, I'm I'm gonna be a little cranky, is how I put it to Dave in the chat. So I'm of a previous generation of record collector. I started collecting records in the '90s when it was uncool, and family members were willing to give me their records and like it was the, it was kind of the, the tail end of the purge of the cd era is when i came into it mostly through hip-hop culture turntablism and um then kind of like funk 45 collecting after dj shadow and cut chemist come out with brain freeze and just followed a lot of trends i've been on record collecting message boards i've flown around the world and dug internationally i've gone to estate sales and just my life was about acquiring records and I worked in a record store for a long time and so my issue with the way that you've posited the the resurgence in this film is in my world all of these things made record collecting worse records are more expensive um I'm happy for the new people who are into it I'm happy especially for like Christopher your daughter the little girls who are going to grow up and like have records as part of a big part of their life but record store day is the single worst day to go to a record store if you really care about records i don't <laughs> wait in line to shop for records i don't want uh elvis costello's 17th album triple vinyl 180 gram deluxe like i want something i've never heard of that's inexpensive that blows my mind right so i guess I, I just, I wanted to share this with you guys because like I said, you seem like nice guys. I liked your movie, but I, I, I want you to know I was angry at times watching it because I'm kind of a crusty old record collector and I'm not a gatekeeper and I don't want to stop people from getting into it at all. I just want you to know that 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 you're going to come across that when you when the film is is out there and so i just want to give you like i feel like i'm a pretty nice guy a nice guy's version of this kind of like backlashy kind of vibe so i guess my question is how do you feel about that i i feel fine actually um i my brother-in-law i nate you and my brother-in-law are right probably in the exact same mold he started he's he's younger than me by like six seven years and he was collecting records in the 90s when no one else was and he was totally pissed when everyone got into it he's like no no and he, and actually i think very recently he's put a bunch of his records up on discogs because he's like i'm done i'm just done with this so um i'll get his no, handle from you at when we're yeah exactly I, no totally i I, have to, I don't even know what it is because like i don't, I don't want to go down that road like i'm too <laughs> afraid of what i'm gonna find in there because <laughs> i don't think my wife will be too happy um that i'd be like paying for like records from her brother-in-law but um 
No, and, and I, I totally feel that too. Uh, hopefully we, we do have some of that perspective, I feel like, in the film. Like Cut I definitely Kirk, feel like um, Kelly Stoltz and the guy from Kelly Stoltz talk about it. Cut recommended Kurt talks a couple about of it. things. Yeah. yeah, Mark Weinstein talks about it when opening like Amoeba. So we feel your pain and, um, and, and recognize it. Also, uh, like Oliver Wong points out too, um, you know, records are actually only still around because DJs kept it alive, kept vinyl alive. And pressing plants like United Records pressing only stick, stuck around because of all the pro, uh, you know, promo singles and dance uh, records that keep getting. And so if it isn't for uh, DJs and if it isn't for indie bands, like vinyl d- does not keep getting pressed. Like it's over, it's done. And so we don't go into too much detail, but we do touch on it just enough. The challenge is in a 92 minute documentary, you can't dig that deep, uh, I guess, into, into all those stories. So we do, again, feel your pain and try to touch on it. But yes, we were kind of telling the story about now and we we made a, a conscious decision to make the history lesson a comp compact part of the movie it was one track and then we wanted to get through it because we felt like that story had been told a lot and we were more curious to explore well what does it mean now like why is it that record the sales of records have increased every year year over year starting in from from 2007 the nadir into 2020 i mean we're in the pandemic and we're selling more vinyl records now than we were in 2019 so something bananas is going on when you're selling more uh, records and cds for the first time since 1986 it's like uh, there's something there's something more at work so it does suck for people like you but Instead, you still know where you can find good deals because even I am not in your world and, and some of my favorite records I found for a couple bucks. Now, those are records I probably could have found for two bucks or three bucks at most. And now they were like four to six. Yeah. But, you know, if I walk out of a record store and I spent less than 25 bucks and I'm walking out with a handful of records, I'm pretty happy. And they were all fantastic shape i don't know kevin what about you like defend yourself like <laughs> we like, gotta stand up to this we can't take this from and, uh, i'll just add i'll just add two things here that i i think saved our movie from being unbearably sugary and naive and, and not seeming like just a big like unicorn parade um I, I got into records quite by accident as an adult in 2007 which unbeknownst to me was the year that the comeback began. Um, So I had this very, very brief window of digging when it was still relatively affordable to dig. And I like to say like, because the person who introduced me to records, i.e. the guy I bought my my first stereo system from, said, the comparison he used is is records are like music community college. It's like like a really cheap education forever. And I was like, that sounds great to me because I love to learn shit. So I was like, I was like, that's fantastic. And so like my first 10 records were all stuff like, were all stuff like, you know, like Roy Ayers, Everybody Loves the Sunshine in basically NM plus for 450. Like, like, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was amazing stuff. Like, and I, I, I lived in that paradise for about 18 months and it was gone, never, never to return. And I think if I, I think if I had had none of that, I would have, I would have, have had no, we would have had to rely totally on the people in our movie for what the before times looked like. I had a very, very small taste of the before times. I am also very fortunate 
that most of what I am into as a record person is schlock that 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 people with taste would not be into. So so there is a never-ending supply of, of of 80s movie soundtracks and Canadian prog rock out there for me. <laughs> Uh, for you know, Triumph studio albums that I will that I will that I will always be happy with. Now, I I do not I I, I feel your pain too. I, I I do not appreciate the fact that like it's uh, Chris and I were talking about this like like nobody has like like th- there has been no great purge of like Tracy Chapman debut albums, and so every one of those is twenty eight dollars like and above. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good a shape they're in. Like. Um, that's just, if that, by virtue of the fact that nobody got rid of that record and it came out after vinyl had already become passe, there's just not a whole lot of it around. Right. So, and we're going to have to wait for a stupid ass re-release where it's, you know, where it's going to be $45 <laughs> for, for no good reason. And, um, and you know, it's going to be three, three platters with two songs aside, and you're going to have to stand there like a flamingo with one leg in the air next to the turntable and, and you know. You won't be able to sit on your couch and listen to it, but yeah. that's that day never comes. And I, I was okay paying, you know, $35 for my used copy of Tracy Chapman's debut album, but I, I totally understand it. Like, I think if I had done the majority of my digging when the world was looking the other way, I would have been like, yeah, get the hell out of here. Like, yeah. stop, stop, stop looking at me and like and, and like <laughs> casting too bright a light on this thing and making and now there's and now there's no copies of like winner in america because because some damn fool teenager came in here and grabbed them all so we could flip them on discog come right. on all right you guys get it i just i just wanted to represent my uh my, the culture as i know it um oh. and I, I, we we do kind of use like crosley as a pejorative it's like, uh, it's okay. <laughs> it's a good entry level thing. Like I, I'll, I'll be really interested to see where the people in your documentary are in 10 years. Like if this is a fad or if right. they've, they've kept with it and the statistics about sales are irrefutable. Um, but I just, I just wanted to, you know, since I had the platform, just d- discuss some of what I said. I liked a lot of what you guys brought to the table. I thought that um, the kind of, eventization of record store day as the intro made it kind of a tough sell for a person like me. Um, but there were many of the interviews that I, that I did enjoy. And I think um, like, for instance, a new school phenomenon such as third man, where they, they like, they brought the manufacturing, the label aspect, the curation, the rareness, but not so much, not everything is uh, the blood encapsulated in between the two sides. And like, they also have just normal records. So anyway, just wanted to, while we had this chance to conversate, um, tell you what I really thought, because I think it's good to give people, you know, honest feedback, but I think um, it's, it's a really interesting thing that you guys are tracking. And I think that, you know, it's clean, it's crisp, it's fun. It's, it's like some good old fashioned, like, Americana, especially with the focus on the families who collect. So I, I did enjoy that aspect of it. You know, um, earlier, uh, Kevin, you mentioned that the film ultimately, you're just telling people it's about human connection. And, uh, and as we're sort of wrapping up here, and as you know, you guys are the, the minds behind this film, um, you know, simple, simple question, like, what do you guys want the viewers to get out of it? What do, how do you want them to leave after watching your film? <laughs> Uh, 
we want them to be happy. Like that was really important to us. And, um, and, and like uh, superficially speaking, like Chris and I would say, if, if you put this movie down and are like, oh my God, I want to go buy a shit ton of records right now. We, we'd be like, good. <laughs> like <laughs> that's what we wanted. Um, but really like we want, I, I think like, we, we see our movie in a couple of different lanes. It's a music documentary. It's also sort of a eh, current, it, it's a culture documentary. It's also a documentary about a thing that, that on the surface of it, you might ask yourself, is it worthy of a documentary? I think a name we, we batted around a bunch when we were making the movie was like the Helvetica documentary, which is, which is about a font, but ultimately is about like, like the human nature of design, like how we all shape our world in our own way. And it's part of what makes us human. Um, I think, I, I think we saw it in all of those different ways, but really like, like we want people to leave. I, I think, I think in a perfect world, people walk out of our movie and they say, I've just made 45 new friends because that's really how we felt making it. Nate, I hate to tell you this, but we have had people tell us that after watching our documentary, they didn't have a turntable, but they had to go out and buy one. So there are more people now buying <laughs> records and making the prices go up and there's less for you. And I'm really <laughs> that, but it's just a fact. So yeah. All good. All good. Right on, Appreciate gentlemen. it, guys. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for telling us your tale. Um, thank you for filming in our friend's record store, Needle to the Groove in San Jose. Um, thank, thanks for, you know, helping people get involved in this culture, which I deeply love, but am haunted by. <laughs> we understand. Uh, the, the movie is available for uh, just a, a, a short, uh, until November 30th at vinylnationfilm.com. And uh, after November 30th, you can still pay attention there and at our socials, Vinyl Nation Doc. Uh, as to what will be happening next, because, you know, when you make a movie about records, you've kind of backed yourself into a corner come when, when you're talking about physical media. So, like, right. we're going to have to do something to, to, to make this movie flesh. So <laughs> keep an eye out for that, too. Appreciate it, man. We'll, we'll definitely amplify all that. And you guys, just thank you again so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate Thanks for it, having too. us. Thanks, all guys. right. Take care, guys. You, too. rap pod that was our interview with the creators of vinyl nation uh shout out to them for coming on the program uh, being grilled by nate and handling it with aplomb we, we really appreciate <laughs> you coming on we encourage everybody to go out and peep the film uh per usual i want to remind you that dad bod rap pod is the number five uh, music interview podcast in albania and as such uh, you should listen, like, subscribe, rate on all the places where you get your podcast content, whether that be uh, Spotify, Apple Music, um, YouTube Music, all the shits, we're there. Uh, you can also check in with us on social media 
at dad bod rap pod on twitter and at dad bod rap pod on instagram and yeah you know we appreciate your patronage uh, of the program we've got some really cool things lined up towards the end of the year so you know hang in there with us and uh hopefully our producer nate leblanc will uh do some like i don't know funk master flex bomb dropping type stuff uh <laughs> To intro this next uh, promo, as you know, we are part of the Stony Island uh, Audio Network, along with a um, great podcast. You can hear uh, Super Duty Tough Work, Blueprint and the Logic, um, Can't Knock the Shuffle. Uh, Mike is going to, Open Mike Eagle is going to have another podcast coming out soon. In addition to that, there's a, a podcast for um, aimed at the dad demographic, so all of you... Uh, who have procreated should be on the lookout for this podcast uh, called Fatherhoods. I think it's kind of funny, Damone, like you and I have talked about this fairly extensively. Like a lot of people reach out to us, like, how come you guys don't talk about parenting more? And I think because of the name of our podcast, <laughs> there's a dad in it yeah. that from us. So right, like, I'm, right. I'm, I'm happy to welcome Fatherhoods to the Stony Island Podcast Network. And I'm also happy to have somewhere to send those referrals. Absolutely. Because <laughs> uh, we, we, we've balked on a bunch of like children's books and different things. Uh, we are of dad age. We are not necessarily dads. Um, and, uh, you know, but we welcome fatherhoods. Um, and, you know, just another dope Stony Island music exp- audio experience. What up? This is your boy, DJ EFN. You might know me as a drink champ. But first and foremost, I'm a proud father. I linked up with two of my other dad homies, Manny Digital and KGB, to start the Fatherhoods podcast. Each week, we bring you insider hip-hop stories, parenting, and advice and therapy. We discuss the joys and the pains of fatherhood from the realest of perspectives and are often joined by dads, and sometimes even moms and even grandparents from all over the hip-hop community. Ever wonder how artists like Bum B, MCA, Nori or Angie Martinez go about balancing their families along with their musical careers or what their unique takes on parenting are, you can find out on the Fatherhoods Podcast. The saying is true, it takes a village and we humorously serve as each other's trusted counsel in figuring out how not to screw up being a good dad. The Fatherhoods Podcast. Beats, rhymes, and diapers.